wonderful to see you here tonight. I don't know how long we, <clears throat> we did the, the study on Elijah. It was a long time. I'm sure I could look and find out. But we finished that study last week, and we are going to be studying, starting a new study in First and Second Timothy, uh, just going through these epistles uh, verse by verse, kind of like we did uh, Philippians uh, several months back. And so I'm excited about it. The things that were going on in that day uh, that we read about and that, that Paul was admonishing Timothy and encouraging Timothy to are still the same things that we go through today in church and ministry and life and, and personal and our own walk with the Lord and so forth. It's very practical. It's very uh, spiritual as well. I think things that are truly spiritual are practical. You know, sometimes we think spiritual things are just just for a doctrinal debate or something like that. But things that are really spiritual, they're of God, they're going to be very practical. They're how, how we live. They're how we know God and how we walk with God and from day to day and what he's called us to do. They're very practical. And so there's a lot of good spiritual, practical things in First and Second Timothy. And I want to start just by reading. So you can turn with me in your Bibles to First Timothy. We're going to read the first five verses. There's no way in the world we're going to get through the first five verses tonight. I don't even attempt to. But uh, I want to give, lay a groundwork tonight, and maybe we'll get uh, into some of these verses. But I want to lay a groundwork for this study. And so let's read it. 1 Timothy 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to besides abide still in Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. That's going to be a real uh, theme throughout First and Second Timothy for sure about sound doctrine. Okay, it's going to, it's repeated over and over again that you teach that charge men that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity, that's love, out of a pure heart and, and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, okay, or sincere faith. It's not pretense, it's not a pretend faith, it's a real faith. So that we're just going to stop there, and I want to lay a groundwork tonight and uh, pray that God would just really use this study, amen, in all of our lives. But 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are called the pastoral epistles, okay? And this is interesting, and I think it's good to know this. The church through history has called those, those three letters the pastoral epistles. Paul wrote all three of them. Timothy was the pastor at this time of the church at Ephesus. Titus was the pastor of the church at Crete. And so with those three books, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, kind of, uh, they carry pretty much one theme throughout, and it's instruction, uh, instruction for how to, how to behave in church, basically. When I say behave, not just like mind your manners, but order in the church and discipline in the church and godliness and the preaching, what's preached in the church and so forth. So these three epistles, I don't know if we'll get to, to Titus or not, but uh, in our study, I, I believe God has shown me we're going to do First and Second Timothy back-to-back. -back. 
and just uh, take our time and go through that. And so, first of all, we know that Paul is the author and Timothy is the recipient, okay? Paul is the author. He wrote most of the, the books in the New Testament, and God used him uh, in such a mighty way. It was probably or possibly written, um, nobody knows exactly when 1 Timothy was written. It was probably written between Paul's two uh, stays in Rome, the Roman prison. So it looks like, remember when we studied Philippians, there, he was in prison, he would be released from that prison, apparently, just what historically and looking at the, the scriptures, trying to piece it together. And then he would be arrested and go back to prison in Rome, where 2 Timothy was written for sure. He said, the time of my departure is at hand in 2 Timothy, right? I'm ready to be offered up to the Lord. And he knew he was going to die in prison. And so this was probably written between those two prison stays, okay? About 64 to 67 A.D. is what most people think. And so um, he calls Timothy his son in the faith. Now, I don't know that Paul is actually the one that led Timothy to the Lord because we do see distinctly that it was Paul's mother and grandmother that taught him the scriptures and the faith that was in him, he said, which was first in your mother, your grandmother and your mother, and I'm persuaded it's in you as well. But he calls him his son in the faith because he took Timothy under his wing. It was a God thing. He took him under his wing and discipled him. And they had an amazing relationship, the two of them together. It was of the Lord. He calls him my son in the faith. He calls him my son. And I just want to read uh, a little bit. So let's keep your spot there in 1 Timothy and turn to Acts chapter 16. We can't study Timothy and who he is in this epistle without reading this from Acts chapter 16. Okay, let's read the first three verses. Acts 16, 1 through, the, through 3. Then came he, this is Paul, came to Derbe and Lystra. Okay, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus. That's Timothy, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed. But her, his father was a Greek. So his mom was a Jew. His dad was a Greek. And the mom we know for sure believed. Apparently the dad didn't because that would have probably been mentioned here. But the mom, mother did believe. She was a believer, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him. So Paul's going to call him to actually go minister with him. Okay, and he did. They ministered together on and off for a long period of time, maybe 20 years. They would minister on and off together. Okay, him who would Paul have to go forth with him and look, he took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. So he, we don't, we're not even getting into this study tonight, but the reason that Paul had Timothy circumcised was so that he would have an entrance to minister the gospel to the Jews. We don't have to get into, you know, the Jews believed in circumcision and these, uh, a lot of physical uh, and outward observances of the law, okay? If they thought he was not circumcised, they wouldn't let, give him the foot in the door, so to speak. So he didn't do it for any spiritual reason in the sense that he was going back under the law or anything like that. He did it to not be an offense to the Jews that he hoped to win to Christ. 
Paul says, I've become all things to all men. So it was nothing more than that. He wasn't legalist. He wasn't going back under the law, not partway or, or any, any portion. He was doing it so they would have an interest and not an initial block to ministering to the Jews. Okay? So that's all that that was about. Uh, most Bible scholars say he was about, Timothy was about 15 years old when they met. And he was about 35 years old when 1 Timothy was written. So let's let it sink in. From about 15 years old when they met, he was about 35 years old when 1 Timothy was written. Okay? Uh, from the youth, he knew the scriptures because his mother and grandmother had taught him and brought him up in the, in the scriptures and in the faith. Amen? And so uh, he, he went not only with Paul on many missionary trips. He, it was his first trip that Paul met him. Uh, and then and I think of the second trip, he actually took him with him. But um, he not only went with Paul, but Paul sometimes would send Timothy out on his behalf or in the Lord's behalf. It would be like his right-hand man when maybe Paul was in prison or maybe Paul was in another place and couldn't get to this church and there was a great need there. And so he would say, I can't make it to you, but I'm sending Timothy to you, okay? And, uh, well, let's read that real quickly because he says in Philippians, when in our study in Philippians, we read this. I'll just, uh, in Philippians 2.20, I'll read it to you. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. So this is how, you know, this was Paul writing to the church at Philippi about Timothy. I'm sending Timothy to you. I'm in prison right now, but he's coming. And I don't have anybody that's as much one with me in Christ, in the Lord. What I would say to you, he will say to you. What, he, what I would rebuke, he'll rebuke. What I, I would instruct, you know, his heart is my heart and both of our hearts are for the Lord. Okay? That's a pretty high compliment. Uh, a pretty good recommendation when the Apostle Paul says, I don't have any other person that's so like-minded like Timothy. And so sometimes Timothy would be sent on Paul's behalf when Paul couldn't go or was unable to go. Now, let's just keep on a little bit further. So Paul uh, had him circumcised, I said, and he, he was a fellow laborer with Paul. When Paul went to Macedonia, he left Timothy with Silas for a short time while he went on to Athens. You know, when Paul preached on Mars Hill and you know, on, and, and spoke, uh, and the people grabbed him and said, what will this babbler say? And then later, he sent for Paul and, uh, and Silas, and they came and met him there. But Timothy visited believers at, in Thessalonica, Macedonia, at Paul's request. And later, he, in 2 Timothy, we know he was actually with him in prison. In other words, he, uh, there was some time we actually came to visit him in, in prison. All right, so what's the theme of these? I'm putting these two together, First and Second Timothy for our theme. What's the theme of, of these two epistles? It's basically this. These are not notes you have to take, but this is just things that are good to know as we, as we start to study. They're instructions from God concerning how to, uh, how to behave within the house of God. Now, I want to look at a scripture here. So we're in First Timothy and look at... Back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll get to these and go into more detail in our study. But for tonight, look at 1 Timothy 3, 
14 and 15. Paul says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou ought to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. So this is almost like an overall theme. It's going to have to do with discipline. It's going to have to do with church, uh, church discipline. They're very, very important practical truths. I said they're still, they're no different today. The, the things that are spiritual and the things of how, how the church is to be organized and in order is really the same uh, for today. So what do we see? We see pure doctrine. I mentioned there's a, there's a repeated about, uh, repetition of sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, wholesome words, and so forth. Pure doctrine, pure worship, and pure uh, ministry. Pure ministry, okay, or faithfulness in ministry. There's also instructions here for personal conduct. So it's not just church. And the two go together because, um, you know, if the church is all organized properly, but there's no personal godliness with the individuals, then it's not going to be what it should be, okay? And same if the, the, the people are maybe very uh, godly and spiritual, but if the church is kind of out of whack and not set up the way it should be and things aren't organized the way they should be, it's not going to be uh, what God has designed for it to be. And so there's no, no actual godliness uh, or true righteousness without sound doctrine. It's very important. I'm, I'm a, this will be a theme throughout. Sound doctrine. Okay, sound doctrine. There's no real righteousness or true godliness without sound doctrine. So we say, well, that's brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. They're the most spiritual man or woman I know. I know their doctrine's off a little bit. I know they're off on this. Well, then you, we have to back up. There's not true spiritual godliness without sound doctrine. It has to be. You can't just say, well, they're just super spiritual and super uh, strongest believer I know, whether that's me, you, anybody else, somebody preacher you watch on TV, I know TV, their 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 doctrines off. I know they're off, but, and we excuse it. And Paul is saying here, don't excuse it. Get it straight. What's wrong can be fixed. That's a good thing. It doesn't have to stay unsound doctrine. Sound unsound doctrine can be corrected, and be brought to sound doctrine. Right. But anyway, it's, it's true. There's no true godliness without sound doctrine. We need to be understand that. And that's what's going to be hammered in, uh, not the only thing, but one of the themes that's going to be hammered and repeated over and over in these pastoral epistles, okay? The pastor or the minister or the teacher, uh, all of the above, the leadership in the church is to always and only preach sound doctrine, we don't experiment with new doctrines. We don't dabble into new things. We don't, well, the head pastor is sound, but some of the teachers that teach the kids or the youth, or they're really whacked out. You know, everybody needs to preach sound doctrine. Sound, healthy, wholesome doctrine, okay? And the people that are hearers. The hearers of the word. That would include the leadership, but it's the people of the body and the congregation. The people are to hear and to hold to and to obey only sound doctrine. 
It's a safety. It's a, it's, it's a, a guide and parameters. It's rails that keep us on track. Everybody in this room has a different personality. You get really excited about something at one time, and then you're, you're you know, a week later, you don't even remember what it was. And same for me. We're human beings. We could be all over the place, and the church ought to do this, and the church ought to do this, and we need to start this. And, we, and we're all over the place. And did you hear what this preacher said in Seattle, Washington? You know, we need to have him here and all over the place. And so there, there are parameters and there are guidelines that God sets up for us for all churches, not just this church. Every church can have its own personality. There's big churches and there's small churches and there are churches that may be more missions-minded than others. And you understand what I'm Some break up in small groups in the, during the week. And I'm not saying yay or nay to any of that. I'm simply saying that, that pure doctrine and sound doctrine is to be preached always and only. And pure doctrine is to be heeded and received and held to and obeyed only. And so we can check each other. This is not a study on this tonight. But I've, I've preached, I don't remember what, how many parts in the series, but at some point, it was in this building, I don't remember when it was, I preached on the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer. People, people have this attitude, some, the pastor is the pastor. That's a God-ordained, God-called position. But everyone that's born again has discernment as well. Everyone that's born again has not only discernment and the ability to discern, is this what I'm being taught? Is it correct or right? Is it biblical? But then you have the, the ability to heed that by the Holy Spirit and by your knowledge and understanding of the word yourself but you have the responsibility to hold to that sound doctrine. So if you hear something that's not sound, it doesn't mean you have to stand up in the middle of church. There's even order on that. You know, if it's me, I'll just use me. And I, Pastor Randy preached something that was confusing. It, it was unbiblical. It was flat out wrong. I know it was wrong. It's not rightly dividing the word, what he said. You, you can't just blow it off and say, well... He's such a, a wonderful man and a wonderful Christian. He, it needs to be you having the responsibility. I pray that I would never do that. I'm on my face before the Lord, okay? But um, if I ever did, or whoever may stand up here and teach or preach, uh, <clears throat> if we hear that, we have the responsibility to, in grace and in humility, go. Maybe you need to take someone with you. Did you hear what, did I hear that right in that sermon tonight? And, and do it in a humble way, do it in a godly way, in a, in, a, in a way that you would want it to be if the roles were reversed, okay? But do it and say, this is what you said. Did you mean to say that? Well, no, I didn't mean to say that. It was a slip of the tongue. I, I misspoke that. I certainly don't believe that. Or, yes, I said it. Uh, and then it goes further. What well, did you mean it? Because that's not what I get from the scriptures. And you know what I'm saying? And do what needs to be done. When that is done, the whole church is benefited from that. The whole church stays on target. The whole church. We have to put an emphasis on it, not because we're the doctrine police, like the, those that care nothing about doctrine, we like to call us, but because it's godly. 
It's faith, righteousness, and godliness. It's going to come out of true, sound doctrine. If our doctrine is wrong, I say this all the time, and I've seen it with my own eyes, and you probably have too. If you look close enough, if doctrine gets off, and I was saying what I mean, gets off and then chooses to stay off and goes in that direction. It's just, this is their new thing. And the, the doctrine of that pastor, that church, that denomination, whatever, gets off. There, there will be things that accompany that pretty quickly. You will see ungodly behavior. You will see ungodly uh, practices. So it doesn't just stay with you believe that and I believe that, but it doesn't really matter. It does matter. You're going to start seeing fruit of that. You will see fruit. There's no, all of a sudden, the people don't have discernment. They can't judge sin. They can't go counsel somebody that sinned sin. A year ago, they could have counseled them and said, that's not of God. But now they've been taught this new false doctrine, and they can't counsel that person anymore. They can't counsel their own selves. They can't counsel their spouse or their children anymore. You know what I mean by counsel. Go to them with God's word and this is not what you're doing, what you're saying, what you're thinking, what you're watching, what you're listening to, the company that you're keeping. This is not of God. And you know, so uh, I know I'm getting off into to all this stuff, but it's important, y'all. It's very important. It's not just some isolated thing that the theologians should debate in a, in a seminary. Doctrine has to do with you. It has to do with your walk with Jesus Christ. It has to do with your church. It has to do with what you're hearing and what you're receiving and what you're walking in. It's not unimportant. It, it couldn't be more important, okay? And so we have the responsibility to, to uh, walk in it, to heed it, to listen to it. I have the responsibility, and everyone that's going to minister to the youth and the children, we have the responsibility to walk in that. So doctrine, okay, sound doctrine. What does it mean? Sound here means more than just correct or orthodox. What does the word sound doctrine mean? It means healthy and health-giving. It's literally where the word, we get the word hygiene comes from. So it's clean, healthy, pure, all right? Clean, healthy, pure doctrine. It's not just orthodox doctrine that this is what our denomination believes. It is clean and healthy and sound, and it's what God has given us, okay? In, in these two epistles, it's called sound doctrine, wholesome words, sound words, sound in the faith, sound speech, okay? So that's how it's described in these two epistles. So I'm laying out some groundwork. Uh, another theme, another word that's used here is the word conscience. Conscience is used six times in these two epistles. It's not used a whole bunch of other times in the Bible, but our conscience, that the conscience can become seared, a conscience can become defiled. Our conscience, even for unbelievers, at least when God created us and every individual, whether they're lost or saved, every individual was created with a conscience that was God-like because we're created in his image. Doesn't mean the individual is saved, but they knew it's wrong to go kill that person. When we start killing people and we step over that conscience and we start sinning and we disregard God, that conscience can become seared as with a hot iron. The conscience can be become defiled to where they can go rob somebody and gossip about somebody and undermine somebody at work or whatever and go home and sleep like a baby at night because their conscience has become seared. It does not 
bother them anymore. That's a dangerous place to be. But that word is used six times in the Bible. I mean, in these epistles. Godliness is also emphasized both uh, personally and as a church. Godliness. Exercise thyself rather to godliness, right? It just has to do with a Christ-likeness. It's a personal, uh, upright walk with God in the Spirit in in obedience to the Lord. Sober and sober-minded is also used 11 times in these epistles. Sober and sober-minded. What does the word sober or sober-minded mean? It means self-controlled. It means sound. It means moderate, temperate of a sound mind. It means disciplined, and it means correct. So a sober mind is going to be disciplined. My mind just doesn't take off. And, and uh, it, it has to do with a disciplined, correct, sound, healthy mind. Okay? The word good is used. Uh, uh, I don't even know how many times. The law is good. Fight a good warfare. Prayer is good. Good works. Good behavior. Good testimony. A good standing. Every creature is good. A good minister. Good doctrine. Piety is good. The good fight of faith. Good confession. A good foundation. A good thing. A good soldier. Good people. Good fidelity. Okay? This is used a lot in these two epistles. Now, I want to talk about this for just uh, a few minutes. In Paul... In the day that this was written, when Paul was writing this epistle out and writing it to Timothy, Timothy, he knew his young friend was going to be facing the perils of ministry. There are perils. It's wonderful. You know, no no minister would trade it for anything. But there's things that are unique to ministry. There are heartaches. There are perils. There are dangers. There are pitfalls. And Timothy was young, I guess you could say, and tender. And Paul was 20 years his senior, okay? And uh, so he's speaking into his life, and he's writing this letter. He knew what his his young, I'm sorry, he was 30 years his senior. And Paul knew what his young pastor friend was going to be facing. He just wanted to prepare him for it. He wanted to encourage him and say, look, when this happens... Don't panic. You know what I mean? You don't have to throw in the towel. What's going to happen to you has happened to other pastors and does happen to other pastors and churches and ministers. And it's good to know that. It's good for me to read First and Second Timothy and all of us. Okay, he knew, he knew that Timothy would have, uh, there's a great need for him to have faith and to have, not give up the faith and say, forget it. This didn't turn out. Pastor in the church at Ephesus didn't turn out at all like I thought it would. Uh, this is miserable. I got people arguing. I got people uh, gossiping about me and undermining my authority. Uh, I'm just, forget it. You know, he's saying, no, get ready, okay? Get ready. You personally be a godly young man and pastor. You stay godly yourself. Here's the order that you set up in the church. Here's how you need to keep your faith. And here's the doctrine and gospel you need to preach. And, you know, just get ready for it. He knew that his young friend would need godly wisdom. And again, an adherence to sound doctrine. Now, the, the uh, serious problems arise. We're talking about sound doctrine. Serious of pro- problems arise when that is not heeded. When it's not preached from the pulpit or taught in the Sunday school class, the sound doctrine. And when it's, or, and or when it's not heeded and almost demanded by the people, one or the other or both, 
there are going to be serious problems, okay? And there were already serious problems at the time in which this was written. And uh, we know about, for example, we haven't studied as a church, we haven't studied the book of Galatians, but you probably know what was the big problem, what was the purpose of the writing of the book, Paul, to the church at Galatia, the one that he started, the Lord used him to start, to preach the gospel, they got saved, and a church started. What was the problem? Well, the pr problem there was that after he left, the Judaizers came in and basically told the people, in order to be righteous, to be saved, to, to have any kind of walk with God, you have to go back under the law. Belief in Jesus is fine, but you have to go back and keep the law. All right? And so these were the Judaizers. That was a false teaching, but it was not the only false teaching. In this day, and John certainly deals with it in 1 John, you know what the other major uh, error, doctrinal error, or false teaching of the day was Gnosticism. There's still lots of versions of Gnosticism in our day. So I want to talk about it for just a moment. Because as I was studying, a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the commentaries were saying that probably, they're not saying it for a fact, but probably the error that was he was dealing with. Look, look at your Bibles. At five, we read it. He says, you know, pre preach the uh, preach love and, and good doctrine. He says in verse six, from from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain janglings, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say or whether they affirm, okay? So there were errors already, and a lot of people think that the error that Paul was specifically, I guess, preparing and identifying and dealing with Timothy about to, to guard him in his own church was Gnosticism. Y'all have heard the word before, a Gnostic, right? They're not, they're not an atheist. An atheist just removes God out of the picture totally. A Gnostic, uh, a Gnostic would say that they believe in God, they might even say, and probably would say, many would say they believe in Jesus. But there's a huge difference. It's not, it's based on two false premises, two main false ones. You could probably find a lot of others. And I want to tell you, this might be something if you're taking notes that you wanted to know. Because John deals with it again in 1 John. He actually deals with it in the Gospel of John, right? That Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That's a counter against Gnosticism. Okay, but anyway, here's one of the false premises that all of Gnosticism uh, errs with, and that is dualism. Dualism, both spirit and matter. They're totally uh, the physical or the matter and the physical is by itself. Your arms, your hair, your appetite, everything, everything physical is inherently evil. What's physical is evil. Okay, so where does this lead to? All right, here's an example. This is a Gnostic teaching. So therefore, any sin done in the body, any sin done in the body, and I think most sins probably are done in the body, not all. Certainly there are sins in the mind and heart and so forth. But any sin done in the body, that according to the Gnostics, has no meaning, no relevance at all. Because real life exists only in the spirit realm. They divide the two so separately, yet my body watched that on TV 
Uh, but that's really is irrelevant because my spirit man is totally separate from that. To us, it's just weird, right? It's just weird. Uh, and yet, this is a Gnostic teaching. Well, you can see, if that was the only error, that's enough error because everything that follows that is going to, is going to be affected by that. I'm going to say it again. Therefore, what, any sin done to the body has no meaning. You commit a sin, I commit a sin, and the body has no meaning, no effect. I would assume it doesn't have to be repented of because it has nothing to do with my spirit man. Because the spirit, uh, real life, according to the Gnostics, exists only in the spirit realm. All right? It's weird. It's bizarre. It's a clever, clever trick of the devil. It's a doctrine of devils and seducing spirits. That's what it is, and somebody believes it. Well, to me, it's just a license to, to live this way and all the while say, I believe in Jesus. My spirit man's being lifted up and exalted, you know, and, and the physical man is out there uh, committing different types of things that God's word calls sin. Okay, that's a serious error. Second belief of the Gnostics, and I, I definitely see this in our day, and it might take on a different name than Gnosticism, but a Gnostic claims a higher knowledge of truth than everybody else. I'm not a Gnostic. You're not a Gnostic. The Gnostics think they have a much higher level of spiritual truth and knowledge, understanding, and attainment than you do. That's pretty that's arrogant, for one thing. It's a serious error. They believe that Gnosticism and the knowledge of this truth that they've reached is only for a certain few. It emphasizes, Gnosticism emphasizes personal experience. Listen to this. This is why Paul, this is a, probably is the error that he was trying to combat. Gnosticism emphasizes personal experience over doctrine. Does that sound familiar? Personal experience over doctrine. Um, well, you could fill in the, the blank with that. The emergent church and the, the progressive church, and they're, they're going to have their mantras and chants and, and uh, centering prayer and the prayer labyrinth, and they're going to do all these things and these candles, but they don't want anything to do with doctrine. Don't bring a doctrine and say what you're doing, and this is incorrect. This is how you approach God, through faith in his son, Jesus Christ and so forth. And this is how we know about God and know how we're to live and be filled with the Spirit and so forth. They don't want doctrine. They emphasize personal experience. I went to Pikes Peak and I got on the top of that mountain and nobody was around and it was at noonday and the sun was blazing down on me and I went to this trance and had this vision. I'm just totally making something up, okay? They would emphasize what happened there far greater than thus saith the Lord. And all the Gnostics would, as part of their belief system, it's a higher level, they have a lot higher level of spiritual understanding and attainment than others, okay? Um, this higher truth is acquired not from the Bible, but from mystical experiences. Mystical experiences. And, and go back and listen to the uh, to the series on on the uh, progressive church, 
that I did on Sunday mornings here. Mystical experiences. They often claim to follow Jesus, but deny him. They deny him at every turn. Well, I believe in Jesus, too. I know him in this way or whatever. But they deny him at every turn. To me, it leads to arrogance. I think it's already arrogance, but it leads to an arrogance. I'll be honest with you. I see it in, I see it in churches in, in our day. I see it in a neo-Calvinist. Not every Calvinist. I see it in what I would call a neo-Calvinist, this new uh, uh, radical Calvinism that it's only for a few. You have to know the Hebrew, Greek, and, and, and the Latin, and you have to know this, and you have to know this. He didn't mean that Jesus died for all. He mean, he, it only means he died for all the elect, and we know that, and you don't. And so it's an arrogance, and it also is going to lead to soulishness and soulishness in worship and what, what they would call worship. Uh, Gnosticism was probably... Regardless of that's if that was what Timothy was written for, uh, Gnosticism was probably the most dangerous heresy to threaten the early church in the first three centuries. Gnosticism again, John, the Gospel of John was the last gospel written, and he comes out straight off the bat. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He gets straight to the point of the deity of Christ in the flesh. The flesh is inherently evil, the Gnostic would say. We, you know, uh, anyway, so I wanted to, to talk about that and to touch on that. It's important, I think, that we at least have some type of a understanding of that. You know what I mean? To, to understand what, what's being dealt with. And like I said, you can see little glimpses and evidences of Gnosticism, even in churches or denominations or books or whatever. They don't, wouldn't call themselves a Gnostic or they're not labeled that. You can see those two types of beliefs or teachings, okay? And, y'all, we just need to be humble and follow the Lord. And I don't hate somebody that's a Gnostic or a Judaizer, but I'm not going to agree with them. I'm not going to pat them on the back and say we're one. Let's go, let's go do a vacation Bible school together, you know? Let's go whatever. Um, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. Okay, and we get that from sound doctrine. And so um, early on, and I'll bring this to a close tonight, but early on, the apostles themselves, I'm thinking Peter and John and so forth, they handled the oversight of the early church, but the church was growing quickly, praise God. It was growing quickly, right? 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 saved uh, when at the, the temple when the lame man was healed. Uh, and we don't even know. It says the Lord was adding to the church daily such as were saved. And then, then traveling and going out to Samaria and, and these other places and people are getting saved. The, the church grew rapidly. It got to where there needed to be uh, like a, almost like a uniform instruction from the Lord. Okay, John and Peter and James can't be everywhere. Neither could Paul be ever, everywhere. Okay. They needed, there needed to be instructions for the church. Here's how you handle this. Timothy, here's how you're going to handle this. And he says the same thing to Titus. Titus, this is how you're going to qualifications for leaders in your church, for those that teach and so forth, and are going to be elders and so forth. And here's how you handle this. And here's what you preach. Like I said, every church 
And every minister, and praise God, they do. Everyone has its own personality. We're not robots, okay? But we all can hold to this and fight for it tooth and nail and love it and obey it and walk in it and see if we're not walking in it and see if somebody else isn't walking in it and they can see if I'm not walking in it. And we need to be able to hold each other accountable to that. That's where the health is going to come in and the blessings from the Lord. He forgives us. You know, we go off and say, God, forgive me. How did I get off into preaching Gnosticism and believing that stuff? God, forgive me. And we repent and we come and we could be fixed and healed and cleansed, right? And keep going. But some people choose that and they go that way and they stay in that. And, and we don't have the responsibility at all to sit under that and, and listen to that or heed that or to say it's okay, okay, because it's not. So I want to close with this. Uh, Paul, Paul lived the type of life, and we're going to talk more about Paul actually next week, but Paul lived the type of life where he could actually um, say to Timothy and to Titus, follow me as I follow Christ. We talked about that when we studied Philippians. That would sound arrogant for a lot of, almost like, wow, he's sure he's cocky, follow me. But he's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. He's not just saying, follow me, okay? He's saying, follow me as I also follow the Lord. So he can write this where the Lord through, through Paul. It's the Lord's word, okay? And all by inspiration of God. But he can write it to Titus and Timothy and to us. It's just as much as real and living and for us. It's just as much authoritative for us as it was to these young men. Uh, and he can say, this is from the Lord. This is how I live. This is what I believe. This is what God taught me. This is what I, Peter and I have taught. This is the same thing the Lord taught Peter and, the, and the, the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And this is what we're walking in. And you can look at me for an example. Everybody in this room, the youngest to the oldest, ought to be able to have an example to look to in you and ought to be able to be an example themselves. You ought to be able to say, you don't know Christ, let me tell you about him. You just are a new believer, come walk with me. I'm going to show you how, how to follow the Lord. Because everybody doesn't know how to follow the Lord. We're born again, and then we need to be discipled, right? We need to grow. We need to grow. We need to teach our children. They ought to be able to look at our lives and say, that's what a Christian is, consistently, consistently. I'm talking about as a pattern. And Paul was able to say that. I'll just close with this, this scripture. Brethren, and Chris, you can come on if you would. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so, as you have us for an example. He wasn't saying he was the only one either. He marked those that, that are doing what's right. Look around in your local church, in your family, whatever. Notice those people that are serious about God and are right in their walk with the Lord and consistent in their walk with the Lord and humble in their walk with the Lord. Mark those people. You have us for examples, he said. He included himself with them. You have us for examples, okay? So Paul would have been a great example to all the believers that he ever influenced, one to the Lord and certainly to Timothy. 
Okay, so this was just an introduction tonight. And uh, well, the altar's open, but just um, uh, during the altar, I'm going to call up the, the youth and the youth leaders, and we're going to pray over them as well. Chris is just going to begin to play. But <clears throat> Father, we come before you tonight, Lord. And God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it's for us. It's not just a letter from Paul to Timothy. It's from the Holy Ghost to all of us. It's a living word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable that we would grow in Christ. And Lord, I pray you would help us, God. Give us spiritual ears to hear and to understand and to learn and to know and to grow in the word of God, in the spirit of God, in the things of God, Lord. We care, Lord. We care about doctrine because you care about it. You gave it to us, Lord. We care about how we behave ourselves in the church, in the house of God, in leadership, in order, God, in discipline, in our own private lives, and in this church, God. And Lord, I thank you for giving this to us, God. And I pray as we go through this study in First and Second Timothy that you would really take your word, God, and hide it in, in our hearts that we wouldn't sin against you, Lord. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord.